Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's springtime. Baseball season is underway. I don't know about you, but my offices are a never-ending stream of young throwers from about February to November. There are many reasons for this, of course, but what is the latest research telling us about our young throwers, and what can we do to advocate for these young throwers to hopefully reduce the likelihood of them needing to seek out sports medicine services? We're ready to take on some research articles with our latest research review episode. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I have two guests on the podcast today. Dr. Peter Kriz is an associate professor and chief of the Division of Primary Care Sports Medicine at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Rhode Island. He completed a fellowship in primary care sports medicine at Boston Children's Hospital in 2010. His research interests include injury prevention and in youth sports, throwing injuries, and sports-related concussion. He's currently a team physician at Brown University, and he is an active member of the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Society, so PRISM, and has lectured at numerous national meetings on the topic of youth sports injuries. Dr. Jason Zaremski is the Chief of Sports Medicine and an Associate Program Director of the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Residency and Associate Professor at the University of Florida. He served for 10 years as the Co-Medical Director of the University of Florida Adolescent and High School Sports Medicine Outreach Program. He is an elected member of the MSSM's Board of Directors and was the Head Medical Officer for the World Baseball Softball Confederation U18 Baseball World Cup in 2022. He is also a former collegiate baseball player. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us, Mark. It's good to have you on today. I'm excited about baseball being back. I've been passionately watching my Cubbies and watched them actually crush the Dodgers last night. So that was a a good thing for me. I don't know about you guys as far as your passion for watching pro baseball on TV, but I've got some tickets next weekend to go see the Cubs and then some Brewers and then the Cubs again on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday kind of little uh, fiesta as I go up to do a half marathon in Milwaukee. But I know you guys love baseball. I know you guys are passionate about baseball. I'm a Red Sox fan, so I think we're going to go down to AAA this year and probably do pretty well. So the way we're starting out. I actually just signed a contract with the A-ball for the Red Sox. Yeah, I think excellent. Pitching, I heard. Good for you. No, but between the, for me growing up in Chicago and then my wife from Boston, we're Cubs and Red Sox fans. So we were pretty lucky a couple of years ago, but I, I'm not so sure how good in either team, team will be this year. We'll, we'll have to see. That's right. That's right. I, you know, I've been I've been pleasantly surprised with the Cubs this year so far. They're a, a little bit of an exciting team to watch so mm-hmm. far. But, you know, they've let my heart down many, many, many times over the course of my 50 years on this planet. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. There's always that hope at the beginning of the season. You know, I'm sure we're going to have some lively discussions today about the, the studies we're going to talk about and uh, just some movements happening in the youth baseball world right now that I know you guys have both been involved with. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that as we go through these articles as well. We'll just go ahead and get started. I will review the first article, and uh, this was recently published online, so it's not in print yet. It's from the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. It's from Dr. Ellen Shanley, a physical therapist, and, and their colleagues in South Carolina. And the title of this article is Arm Injury in Youth Baseball Players, and it's a 10-year cohort study. To be- give some background on this article, it's a prospective study that says it's a 10-year cohort study, but actually only some of the patients made it through the full 10 years for various reasons. This was looking at middle and high school baseball players. They were enrolled through the 2010 and 2012 season, 
and were followed until they were considered retired from competitive baseball. There was a total of 261 pitchers that were enrolled in this study. They had a mean age of 14.2. And their follow-up, and this is, again, the kicker here for the 10-year cohort, was between 4.2 with plus or minus 2.7 years. And they had 20% of this cohort that got followed for seven or more years. And obviously, you know, part of the reason why that's going to be is these were middle and high school players. Not all of them are going to go on past high school. So we are going to have some fall off there for sure. But they did have that 20% followed for more than seven years. And that was pretty much the group that went on to further things in college and, and pro ball. These players were recruited from a large school district in South Carolina, they excluded any players that had prior arm surgery or any time loss injuries. So these were all those that were considered, so to speak, clean athletes. And the players were monitored for injuries as well as their continued participation in baseball. And the way they defined injury is that any arm injury that occurred in any baseball team sponsored activity from the beginning of their preseason for that team through the last postseason game, those were kind of the category that they kept them in. And if the injury was reported to a coach, a parent, or they were referred to the school athletic trainer or a physical therapist, they were then evaluated and they classified the injury. The only arm injuries that were actually included were those that were required to miss one or more practices or games, and they also received care from a sports medicine or an orthopedic surgeon. They didn't include like little minor injuries and things like that. So we're probably underestimating the true incidence of pain and problems here when we're looking at that. And then they classified multiple injuries, either as exacerbation events, recurrent injuries and subsequent injuries. And those kind of make a lot of sense as far as what they're doing. So exacerbation, the previous problem that was there that really hadn't gone away, a recurrent injury, same problem that went away and then came back and then subsequent injuries. So those are new injuries down the road. And then, like I mentioned before, 20% of the included players that were enrolled continue to play in either junior college, college, or professional baseball. They found during the course of this study, 63 of these pitchers were injured, and then 16 players were treated for in that multiple injury category. And there were 16 surgeries that occurred in this cohort as well. And what they found is this cumulative incidence of arm injuries was 24.8 per 100 athletes, which I was kind of interested why they listed like that, because it really just is 25% of the, the cohort wound up having injuries, but in the, in the big picture of things here. And that's very similar to what we see in other studies that have been published on this type of things with shoulder and elbow pain and incidents there. The incidence over that, that duration of study also showed 5.7 arm injuries per 100 player seasons. And the surgical incidence was 5.9 per 100 athletes. There were a couple of interesting things I thought in here. In those athletes that had multiple injuries, four of the six athletes who were treated surgically for UCL reconstruction initially had conservative treatment for medial epicondylar apophysitis or little league elbow, as we commonly refer to that. And this was an average of 4.5 years before they had their UCL surgery. And so we can talk about that. I would be interested to have your guys' thoughts on that because... Obviously, there's probably some correlation there with mechanics, other things going on there that's causing that increased stress for that person along their medial elbow and probably their skeletally mature at that point, which led to their UCL. And then also athletes who had an elbow injury had a relative risk 4.8 times higher to progress to surgery than those who had a shoulder injury. In fact, actually, in this group, there really weren't any of the shoulder athletes with the common injuries that actually led to any surgery. And then the frequencies of injuries, uh, another interesting part here is those who had the highest level of participation from high school, it was significantly less for frequency of injuries than those who reached college or professional level. So those that only got to the high school level, there was a frequency of injury was 18.9%. But once you reach college or professional levels, it was 52.1%. So much significant higher risk for developing shoulder elbow issues in this group. The most common elbow diagnoses was literally elbow. That was about 50% of the elbow injuries here, followed by 32% with UCL injuries, and then 10% with flexor pronator strains. 
And then in the shoulder group, the Little League shoulder accounted for 40% of diagnoses, 28% with rotator cuff pathology is what they described, and then 24% with uh, SLAP, so superior labral anterior posterior tears and biceps pathology. And then all the main shoulder diagnoses, like I mentioned, were treated conservatively. 17% of those that had the top three elbow issues went on to surgical management. What does this add to our knowledge? And the big thing, we do see similar rates, like I mentioned, with previous studies, this 25 to 30% of baseball players who report elbow or shoulder pain. They found 47% of those who had little league elbow diagnosed suffered a second injury, and 56% were then diagnosed with a subsequent UCL injury. And again, I'd love to discuss that with you guys as why you think that may be. There were some limitations. They talked about how they defined an injury, like I mentioned, to start off with. So they're, they're probably underestimating the incidence of problems in this, this cohort because it did require ultimate assessment by a physician. And it likely eliminates some of these minor injuries and, and can lead to an underestimation of the pain or problems. And there also is some, obviously, some selection bias that we see with this particular kind of way of method of dealing with this. But again, it's not, this isn't like an earth shattering study by any means. I, I like, you know, kind of these longitudinal studies just to get us an idea of if we're seeing anything over the course of long term, which is why I picked this particular one. But it does add to our knowledge base. It gives us some little extra things and kind of verifies some of the things we th- we've seen previously. But I'd love your guys' thoughts on this particular study. You know, a couple of things, Ellen Shanley, Chuck Thigben, they do great research. You know, this is a level one prospective cohort study. Those studies are hard to do. Anyone that's tried Mm -hmm. to do a prospective study knows how challenging it is for follow-up, attrition, everything else. And uh, so kudos to them. This is, I I think, a a really nicely designed study. The thing that that caught my attention, and and I think more for conversation, I I was really impressed that 20% of the athletes that were enrolled in the study, so middle school and high school kids, went on to play in college. I mean, if if you know the numbers, the NCAA numbers, about 7% of high school kids play D1 through D3 college baseball. So this is a community that has nearly three times the rate of kids going on to play college baseball. So you're talking about a pretty high level of play, number one. Obviously, it's it's Greenville, South Carolina. They're right in the hotbed there. Putting on my journal club nerd hat for a second, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. You know, the study obviously has very good internal validity. It's, you know, it's prospective. It's, it's, They've got long-term follow-up, but I, you know, the the external validity and how generalizable it is to other regions of the country, maybe not so as much. But I think the numbers hold up. I think that 25% of players experiencing time loss injury and about 5% requiring surgery. I think that's what we see nationwide. So I do think from that standpoint, those percentages hold up. So, you know, again, a good study. I think it, it to some extent reiterates what Glenn Fleissig and his group has. And and I guess that's my my comment. This is this may be more of a regional thing. I think you could probably put all those southeast states, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Zeke can certainly comment on that too. You know, I, I'm I'm curious what the the, the college playing rate from high schoolers is in Florida. I don't know if Jason knows as well, but you know, that, that really caught my attention 20%. So, but anyways, I, I think it's a nice study. I give them a lot of credit. Prospective studies are really hard to mm-hmm. do and, and, and they couldn't control the attrition rate. You know, if you look at the, the follow-up rate, only 20%, obviously that's the, those are the kids that went on to play and the other kids ended their, their playing careers. Correct. So I mean, just the, the nature of, of playing any competitive sport. I'd echo number one what Peter said, what what Dr. Shanley and Thickpen, their team. I mean, this is it's really hard to do these long term studies, mm-hmm. whether you have grant funding or not. And just for continuation and completion, again, this is an outstanding study just to complete it 
and have, you know, a high number of athletes in it. So that's, you know, first and foremost. From the number standpoint, yeah, if you go back to, I guess it would be the Lyman studies from 01 and 02 that I believe are in AJS, I think it's AJSM. We've seen, you know, you play in a high school season, you're, it's somewhere going to be around 20%, 25% will have some sort of injury. Now, is that just throwing related or is it also a hamstring, a lumbar spine? You know, it depends on the cohort. I think Peter's point is well taken in terms of the regionalization. If you're talking about Southeast and if you want in like Texas, California, Arizona, kind of warm weather states. We know from a couple of studies, one was done at our institution. One was done, I believe it was led by Dr. Romeo's team up in Chicago, that there is an increased risk of injury, particular UCL injury. If you either grow up in a warm weather state or you end up playing college ball in a warm weather state compared to a northern state, somewhere it's up there around 5 to 7% greater. Those are retrospective studies. So, and, and even my study, it wasn't it wasn't super strong. It was more observational. I think you know part of the the thing that we're seeing here, and this is something I'm, I'm sure we'll allude to in the next two manuscripts, as well as you know something that I think all three of us are aware of, and I know Peter and myself and a few other colleagues are working on, is as you mature physically and as you grow, you're going to develop more power in whatever sport it is, whether it's running, whether it's baseball, softball, javelin, soccer. With that, the stronger you are, the more physically mature you are, the more skeletally mature you are, in some ways have to be more careful as opposed to if you're seven, eight, nine years old. The biomechanics, while they matter, they don't matter quite as much when you're seven years old, but when you're 12 and 13 and you're starting to go through the physical maturation and you start to develop more power, start to develop more strength, those stressors and torques across the elbow and shoulder and other parts of your body start to go up. So if you haven't learned the good biomechanics, and the good pitching mechanics. Now that's when the injuries really start to happen. It's usually around middle school age and then to your early ages of high school. I can tell you, I just saw an athlete recently that I treated for two years when he was 11 and 12 years old for basically a recurrent lily elbow. It was fine. And now he's a beast. He's about 6'2 and he's throwing 88 to 90 and he just popped his UCL. So now he's going on to the surgeon. Now, did what happened when he was 11 and 12 directly correlate to what happened a month ago? I don't know, maybe, but we know that if you start things off the right way down the line, the likelihood of throwing related injury is less. And I think there's a great study. I can't remember which year it was published, but Dr. Fleissig and his team at ASMI was a seven-year study looking at biomechanics and power. And that basically, I don't want to say the word prove, because I know we're not, never supposed to say that in, uh, in publications, but it's strongly correlated that if you learn their biomechanics before physical maturation, the likelihood of injury goes down because your mechanics are better once you have all that power and force when you're 15, 16, 17 years old. You know, I want to come back and circle around to this UCL. And obviously, we can probably talk about that more with Peter's study later on. But just the incidents that we saw here, that was a high percentage of those that had had previous Little League elbow that went on to UCL injuries and UCL reconstructions in this particular cohort. I mean, I'm sure we all see that a zillion times, the three of us in our in our office. I mean, it's it's like it's like a never ending flood, it seems, here for me in St. Louis. It's one of those things that we we keep we talk about these things and hope that they're self-limited, but you know, I don't know. And I'd love to you know, kind of just get your guys' thoughts about just in general, do we need to stop talking about the breaking pitches as being the the bad guy here? And do we really need to start emphasizing the fastball as far as the, the culprit for these things? There's data, there's published data, and there's publicly available data on different websites from well-known throwing clinics and performance institutes. And pretty consistently is, Mark, you're exactly right, is 
breaking pitches, you have to have good mechanics, but the kinematics across the elbow are a lot less than with a fastball. And while we're not, I don't believe we're going to discuss this today with the advent of weight ball velocity programs and increase the artificial increase in velocity in short mouth times, I think that in part combined with the cumulative overuse is probably maintaining and increasing the the volume of UCL injuries, particularly in baseball pitchers, you know, is the primary sport. You add in javelineers, but the volume of javelineers is much lower. But that would be my suspicion is that we all, the three of us probably did had tons of little league elbow, but we didn't have some of the other things that are going on today where my velocity didn't you know, creep up from 75 to 83 in a six to eight week time frame using, you know, some performance programs, which they do work. We all know they work, but they work at a pretty quick rate, uh, particularly if you're skeletally immature or just becoming skeletally mature. You know, we know from the data, that's like a 25% increase or risk of injury. That's my quick take on it. Peter, what do you, what do you think? If you look at just the the load to failure at the elbow with elbow vagus loads and, and what tissue and, and the static and the, the dynamic stabilizers are responsible for. I, I think Glenn Fleisick and his group has shown that once you're over 80 miles per hour, you're going to, with, with every pitch, you're going to exceed that, that failure load, right? So it's, um, it's not necessarily the velocity, but as you get into higher velocities and We've done some studies, as have other groups. Once you're up to about 91, 92 miles per hour, that's the the mean velocity where you're seeing at least pro pitchers tear. So you don't see a lot of kids that throw 75 to 79 miles per hour undergoing UCL reconstruction, certainly once you're getting higher. And, and it, it's multifactorial, right? I mean, you can't just pin it on the fastball versus the curveball. And, and I think early on, Dr. Andrews and ASMI, they still have concerns about off-speed pitches and curveballs and sliders for, for certain, but I think a lot of the attention in the recent literature has shown that probably the forces generated with fastball velocity may be more of the concern. It's, it's interesting stuff and, and obviously things that we are still teasing out in the world of baseball, but I, you know, I think it's kind of, it's just a good discussion to have because, you know, I, I still, still a regular discussion in my office where people come in and they, they ask about the, you know, are the breaking pitches bad and should, should my kid not be throwing them and what have you. And I still go down the, the line and says, I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, trying to get the heater and get your gun out. That's probably going to be the bigger issue for you in the long run, at least that's kind of my take, but then going back to arm care, we can certainly talk about that more later on too. May I make one comment just yeah. in, in their discussion? They mentioned that athletes, the results too, that present with elbow injuries had a significant risk, greater risk of progressing to surgical treatment than those with a, a shoulder injury. The relative rate was about five. And that, I think this is good for the, the listeners because even as sports medicine physicians, if you don't take care of a lot of baseball players, there was a study out of ASMI, uh, I think it was in uh, AJSM in 2018, looking at return to play and outcomes of baseball players after they've had slap repairs. And, and, and this is, I don't think it's quite common knowledge, but there's been recent literature that shows that slap injuries should really be managed non-operatively just because the return to play particularly for pitchers is is very low overall for all players position players and and pitchers in that study the return to play rate was only 62% but it was much lower for pitchers compared to 
position player. So I think, you know, when we're seeing athletes and we, we get an MR arthrogram or MRI of their shoulder, which is uh, deba- debatable whether you should do that at, you know, with any throwing athlete, you know, oftentimes, you know, everyone focuses on the radiologist's impression in that study report, but ultimately the management is going to be very different than it is for a, an elbow injury, particularly for a UCL complete tear for sure. We can get into management of high grade UCL tears and everything else. But I, I do think it's important for particularly sports medicine physicians that are managing baseball athletes to know that just because there's a slap tear on the MRI or the MR orthogram doesn't mean that's going to be a, a need jerk referral to the surgeon. Yeah. And the question is, is obviously, is, is it really the slap tear that's that's the source of the pain or is it more of a coracoid impingement type issue? And it's just, sure. they got horrible scapular dyskinesis and you fix that and change where their shoulder position is. And then they unload the shoulder. And my partner here who does a lot with baseball athletes from a surgical standpoint, he's a big pusher of this as am I, where we were going to rehab the heck out of you first before we, we even touch that. I, I rarely look with an arthrogram in my throwers early on in the process, just because I'm probably going to find something most likely in, in one of these throwers that are high level throwers that come into our clinic. But does that mean I need to do something about it outside of just giving them a good rehab program, especially when they have such gross scapular dyskinesis on their exam. Well, good. We can we can move on to the second article. This one we're going to discuss is from Dr. Joseph Manzi and colleagues, and it was recently published in 2022 in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. It's titled Variability in Pitch Count Limits and Rest Day Requirements by State, Implications of Season-Long Pitch Counts in High School Baseball Pitchers. And Jason's going to walk us through this article. Yeah, thanks, Mark. This is interesting. You know, there's been the push and the increase in pitch count regulations, pitch count guidelines, really started in the mid to late 1990s, and then kind of pushed forward even further in 2006 with Little League Baseball and the USA Baseball Medical Advisory Committee. And then in 2000, I think it was 14, Major League Baseball and Little League Baseball partnered and came up with MLB Pitch Smart, which has been a really nice resource, I think, for parents, for coaches, for student athletes to really see recommended guidelines for in-game pitches. And then what happened is the National Federation of State High School Associations, I believe it was 2016, agreed that there should be pitch count rules or stipulations. And what they did is they put it back on the states. States basically could create or follow their own guidelines. And I believe that probably caused a little bit of confusion because there's not consistency across the states. And, you know, particularly if you go from high school to non-high school teams for your 13 to 18 year olds. So really what this manuscript and this study was doing was looking at the season-long pitch counts, but then also looking at the variability of these pitch count limits or regulations, guidelines, and associated rest day requirements state by state. Obviously, this is a observational retrospective study looking at pitch count rules. This is out of 2019, 2020, so right before the pandemic started. And essentially what they did is when they looked at each of the pitch limits, they were analyzed using different distinctions in each state. They looked at the level of competition. So they basically just they just cut it off and saying, are you a varsity athlete? Or a, they said junior varsity, but you can think of it as non-varsity athlete. Second, academic grade, because as we know, there might be some really good freshmen p- pitching up on the varsity. So they looked at that, which I thought was really important. The age of the athlete, again, ninth grader could be 13, it could be 15, depending on your date of birth when you start school when you were four or five. The other thing they started to look at, which I thought was very interesting, is early versus late season restrictions, maybe as you build your workload up. So I thought that was a really nice way that they approached this. 
They also looked at if there are any changes to the postseason. So if there are pitch count, postseason changes or restrictions. And then some things that I know Peter and I have been very curious about is consecutive pitch day restrictions. Can you pitch on consecutive days based on the volume of in-game pitches you've thrown? Are there any weekly or multi-day pitch limits? And then the ability to finish the batter. If your pitch count limit is 100 and you're at 97 with a new batter, can you at least finish the batter, which, which I think is sometimes very reasonable. They also took a look at, and what they defined as consecutive day restrictions in pitching were additional days of rest or pitch limits on pitchers who pitch for several days in a row after a minimum of two days off. So they kind of looked at over a week, not just at your, at your start or if you came in as a reliever. The other thing they did, which I thought was, was interesting that I have not seen done yet, is they calculate a theoretical three-month season. Most high schools from the time your first game, and I can say in Florida, it's usually around Valentine's Day, and unless you make it to the state championship, it's usually about 12 weeks, usually about three weeks. Now, where they're not adding in preseason, they're not adding in, you know, if you make it to states or, or if there's some delay, but, you know, three months, I think, is a reasonable approach. And the way that they calculated their theoretical season is that each pitcher would perform the entire pitch count limit of interest. So if you are in Florida, as an example, we use MLB Pitch Smart. So based on your age, if you're a senior in high school or if you're 18, it's 105 pitches. So they did that. And then they did a, a few other things from a statistical standpoint. I won't, won't go through the statistical analyses, but what they found was really interesting. And if uh, any of the viewers want to actually go to the article on page 2799 or table one, is you can see how confusing it is because when you look, there's variability in maximum pitch count. So you have, I think it was something like 13 states have a max of 105 pitches, but there's different days of rest between those states, whether it's three days or four days, if you go into the maximum level of pitches. Then you have an additional number of states that I believe is 18 states. You can throw up to 110 pitches and there's variability on days off, including Nevada, I believe, didn't have any days off. And then you can go up to 115. Curiously, that's in Massachusetts, a northern state. And then you have 120 pitches for an additional 11 states. And then actually two states to 125 pitches. Again, this is live game pitches. But then it would have, I believe, it was seven days of rest. So I think they're trying to account for that. And then two states didn't have anything. This is Montana, Wyoming. I realize there's a there's challenges with weather there and, and temperature. So that alone, just from an observational standpoint, I can see how challenging it is. Not just within the state. If you live in the state, you don't play travel ball. It is what it is. But then you switch from May to June, or if you're in Florida, any time of the year, it seems like, or California, to your travel team. Those rules don't apply. Or if you travel across state lines, you know, you, we just went over the Shanley study in South Carolina. It's not a huge state. You go up to North Carolina, you come down to Florida, go across to Georgia very easily. It's all two hours away. That makes it a little bit more challenging. I thought that was very interesting how they approached things. The other thing they did is they looked at the number of states that made a distinction for pitch count limits or rest day restriction based on the pitch count rules variables. So what were the variables? Are there changes based on if you're at the JV or varsity level? Or what about your grade level? What about the age level? And they went through all these. That's table two. And again, there was... Pretty consistently, not consistency. If you want to, if you want me to do a kind of double entendre there. Now, one thing that was nice is most of the states, forty-six out of the forty-eight, did allow you to finish a batter, which I would agree with. 
but you have, you know, 19 states had different pitch limits based on junior varsity versus varsity. There are different pitch limits on grade level, not so much age level. Age level, there was only one state where there was difference. So similar to talking about pitch counts or innings, they were using grade level versus age, which is curious that those respective states have done. And then further from the statistical analyses perspective, if you look at figures two and figure figures two through four, taking a look at these theoretical three-month pitch counts, obviously there's variability. There is a large variability, particularly in figure 2B. If you're looking at states that had different pitch count limits, you have Nevada is nearly 50% greater than South Carolina. I would say, though, this is also assuming every time a pitcher pitches, he or she is going to throw to the max level, which you cannot assume. You know, essentially, this is a really nice study that shows the challenges that parents, sports medicine team members, athletic trainers, team docs, consultants, the sports performance members, and even the student athletes are going to get confused about. We haven't even gone to rest day requirements, which vary. I think there's a lot of challenges there. Now, one thing this study is very good about stating, and this has been saying in other pitch count studies as well, is that this is not a correlative study with injury. It is purely observational, and the authors make a very nice job of stating that. We are just looking at where the policy. This is a policy study. Additionally, they make a comment saying they didn't want to take into account, nor could they, of comprehensive workload because it really doesn't capture pitchers thrown in warm-up and practice sessions. Now, there are multiple studies out there. Our team at UF led the first study at the high school level that did this. There actually is a Major League Baseball study that just came out. I think it's in press right now that has been bannered about on Twitter. And the numbers of pitches thrown not counted off the mound were nearly identical. I think it was 45% Major League Baseball level, and it was 41% at the high school level. So we know that there's more than 40% of pitches off of a mound, not in game, they're not being counted. I think the authors state that very clearly. The other thing I would like to say that I was a little curious is, and, and I, I highlight this line is, in their limitations, is the disparate trends that result from variable pitch count rules are still a point of emphasis for future improvement in workload management of high school baseball players. I do want to emphasize to the listeners and to, and to both of you, which both of you know this is, Pitches are not workload. Pitches are a component of workload, but workload doesn't equal pitches. You have to have your velocity, your max effort, your intensity. Have you built up your workload? Is it first month of the season? Is it three months in? Is it six months in? You know, all that really comes into play. And then there's other physiological factors. Have you gone through a growth spurt? Are you in that middle school age where maybe you're tall and lanky, but your body hasn't caught up yet versus if you're 16 years old and maybe now you're skeletally or close to skeletally mature? You know, the one thing I, I, I like and I take away from this, A, it really shows what the authors did is that the challenges, they're out there across the country. And I would also add in Japan is, a, is another part of the world that has really started to look at this. And there's challenges over there of how they're implementing pitch counts and the associative issues with that. But then the authors also made some recommendations, which is very nice. Some of the recommendations I agree with, and some of them they're certainly up for discussion, but they made some recommendations about having uniform pitch count limits throughout the country, which I think is very reasonable. Now there are challenges. Peter's up in Rhode Island. I'm in Florida. 
there may be inherent differences because maybe our pitchers workload, if they're truly practicing and not playing a winter sport are going to be higher than the kids in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and new England that are playing basketball or wrestling. And unless they go to an indoor facility, they're not thrown outside until March. So whereas we're halfway through our season in March, that said, I thought it was a very nice study. I appreciate and applaud the authors at HSS for doing this, the, the team up in New York and in South Florida. I'd be curious what, what do you two think of this? Yeah, I thought it was a really nicely designed study. I really thought the theoretical three-month season was pretty genius because it really made you think about the, the issues with not only pitch counts, but rest days and, and, you know, is one more important than the other? I mean, what is just mind-blowing is just the variability between the 48 states that sanction high school baseball. I mean, Jason and I have been collaborating on a number of different things, but we basically put this into a spreadsheet and we, we looked at each interscholastic association's recommendations when they came out. Just, you know, some of them already had them in place, like South Dakota and Vermont have been doing this since the early 2000s. Whereas most states jumped on in 2016, 2017, and some jumped on a season or two later. I'll share with you guys something that I've had a conversation with one of the NFHS officials that in one of the states, I won't name the state, prior to this mandate, the principals at the schools, individual schools in that state set the pitch count. So if you were at a school where maybe your principal didn't have a knowledge of baseball, they could say, well, 300 pitches, you know, I'm not, not that they would do that, but that's just how in need of a mandate there was. It was just, even within a state, there was variability, right? So I, I thought this study for me just generated a lot of opportunity to think about this and think about just, and, and really the critical need for a uniform pitch count, not just at the high school level, but across all levels of play, whether we're talking American Legion, travel, showcase baseball. And then, you know, obviously we're going to probably get in the conversation about compliance and enforcement of these two. I think probably at the high school level, the compliance is good because you've got to sign off on the scorebooks and everything else. And, and you've got governing bodies that are looking at these and they're being sent in and everything else. A couple of things I wanted to bring up that I thought were really interesting. Jason mentioned the, the, the authors had some recommendations. If you look at table three, this is on 2802. One of the things that we have kind of a, a working group talking about, you know, potential improvements to pitch counts and days of rest. And if we were going to make some recommendations, you can see that after analyzing the data, if you look at the number of pitches thrown, zero to 20, they're recommending a day of rest. Now, the only state out of the 48 currently that has a recommended day of rest after throwing a minimum amount of pitches, and that can vary from 20 to, I think, up to 35, maybe 45 in some states, but is New York State. So they recommend when you've thrown 1 to 40, the varsity level, there's an, a recommended day of rest. And at the sub-varsity level, which is JV freshman teams, it's 1 to 30. So I think one of the things that we've debated, and we've involved some other arm care movement people that are very well-respected, and a lot of them just think it's egregious that kids are not getting a day of rest after even 20, 30 pitches. And, and as Jason and his team have, have shown, there's additional workload here. If we're going to talk about pitches as workload in terms of your, your bullpen and your warm-up pitches in between innings, just because you've thrown 30 in-game pitches doesn't mean you haven't thrown 60, 75 pitches on a day. I think this is really something if we're going to make improvements to some of these 
pitching restriction policies, that really needs to be considered. I think a day of rest after any outing, particularly in a skeletally immature, physically immature developing kid is really important. The other point I was going to make is um, when we've looked at these individual state policies is they, some states, there are about eight states that have adopted pitch smart guidelines, almost verbatim. Now, what they've done is Oftentimes for the days of rest, they use the 15 to 16-year-old guideline for days of rest rather than the 17 and 18-year-old guideline. So most of them have made some slight modifications to pitch smart guidelines. They've adopted the pitch counts for each of those levels, but the days of rest are using a younger age group, which is fine. I think that's a little bit more conservative. I think the other point the, the authors make in the study is that younger high school pitchers maybe at even greater risk in these models because most of the states are using a max pitch count of 105. You know, the most common, I think, was 110, right? So, but if you look at USA Baseball recommendations, the max pitch counts vary between age groups. So at 17 and 18, it's 105 pitches. And then for 13 to 16-year-olds, it's it's 95. So if you have, as Jason alluded to, that freshman pitcher who is a stud, but maybe is 14 years old, he's going to potentially be subjected to a higher pitch count than is recommended for his age by USA Baseball. Another thing I just wanted to chime in on, and again, there's there's some data on this, but the correlative for injury, you can't compare eras, and you know, kind of going to the whole LeBron versus Jordan thing is, let's say for sake of argument, this manuscript was published 25 years ago, right? And all this stuff was implemented 25 years ago. And for those Cub fans out there, so Mark and myself, in particular, Greg Maddox threw 91. He could throw 95, but threw 91 to 93 most of his career. And most pitchers were throwing at the major league level 95. They can get up to 95. But now that whether through various training programs and throwing max effort has been advocated by some groups over and over again, this is where the workload comes in. Effort is part of that. It's one thing if Peter's coaching a team or he's the team doc and the coach for the team and you go, you pitch on day one, you rest on day two, day three, you're going to do a quote unquote light bullpen. You work in your mechanics, you throw 50% subjective max effort. Well, if kids are being taught to throw max effort once they warm up every single time, does that change the volume of game pitches that we recommend? Because these were the same pitches from, let's say, 2014. And the guidelines, I really do like the MLB pitch mark guidelines. But that was a decade ago. I mean, you can look at the Major League Baseball data of the average fastball velocity. I think is increased. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but I think it's approximately close to 1.7 or close to 2 miles per hour in nine years. And that's publicly available data from StatCast. I think Mike Reinhold has published, put on his website, well, you may not think two miles an hour is a lot, but that's the average. Well, if that keeps going up, the average fastball is going to be, what, 103 miles per hour in 15 years? That's just not going to happen because the human elbow will fail. But I go back to, and this is a theoretical discussion, is if all of this was in place 25 years ago, before the advent of max effort, weighted ball velocity, and just trying to you know do that in every single pitch... Would injury rates be lower? Will volume of throwing-related injuries be lower? I don't know the answer to that. I know it's a fun discussion to have if you're at a bar or at dinner or something. I just find it very curious. I would agree with you 100% on that. I, and again, this is my whole thing about the fastball. And we talk so much about this. And you know, you're talking about the max effort and just getting up there. And everybody has that goal of getting into those triple digits of hitting on the radar gun now because that's that's what makes everybody's eyes pop 
once you hit 100 plus on the on the radar gun. And when you're talking about that workload, yeah, I mean, we know that there's going to be less force on that elbow and on the arm in general, if you're doing more of those breaking pitches and, and, you know, we don't see that type of pitcher that much anymore. I mean, it's a rare pitcher. It's all, it's all emphasis on the power pitching for the most part throughout major league baseball and at those levels up above there. I mean, I would say at the highest levels of college, Grant, I'm in SEC, ACC country. I was watching uh, Tennessee LSU the other day and LSU's number one pitcher, you know, he's topping a hundred. That's great. His off speed was at 92 miles per hour. His off speed, Greg Match was throwing 91 <laughs> for his fastball the last couple of years of his career. Yeah. So I just, I just think observationally with an N of one, I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. So it's fun as a fan, but as a, as a provider and hopefully to not prevent, but reduce the volume of throwing late injury, especially in those folks who are still growing. It's challenging because you mm-hmm. want, you want, we want our kids to be successful and there are ways to get them successful, but it comes with a 25% increased risk of injury. Yeah, I really, I love this study just from the graphics. I'm a visual person, so I love table one. And just, I mean, it was eye-opening just kind of looking, but it also wasn't, to me, it wasn't too shocking as far as seeing the variability there, just because we know kind of how that is across the country. There's so much variability in how all of us handle stuff, just even in our own clinics and things like that. But then also just how states handle this stuff as far as regulating. I remember when being on our sports medicine advisory committee here in Missouri, when we, we came up with these guidelines we got smashed on social media by baseball coaches, high school baseball coaches in Missouri about why were we implementing these pitch counts and this is going to destroy baseball in Missouri. And we were making all of our pitchers soft because of all these restrictions that we put on them now. And obviously it's quieted down now, now that it's been implemented for several Mm -hmm. years, but there was some very vocal uprising about some many, many uh, baseball coaches in this state when we did this. I, I I love what you brought up the Nevada one on there. I, I looked my, my jaw dropped when I saw zero days of rest for Nevada. But then if you look in the article, they actually talk about that. They they do, they have the zero days of rest, but then they have this other little thing that you can do 140 pitches over three days. So you could have an outing, I guess, starting outing and then go back and pitch 30 more pitches in the next three days. And you're still, I guess, okay in Nevada. I don't know why they're the outlier there. As far as that goes, maybe we'll have to talk to some of our colleagues in Nevada to be looking at their uh, what they're doing there. So, but anyhow, I, I really like this, and and again, you guys hit a lot of the points that I would have mentioned too. I think it's just it's good to look at. It's good for us to have discussion points and coming back to what can we do to change things and just obviously improve the health and safety of our our athletes. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our research review on baseball. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective, on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that's truly outside the box from The Voice Box. Voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. 
here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. And now back to the podcast. All right. And finally, we'll have Dr. Peter Chris discuss his study. This was published in 2022, also in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, and it's titled Ulnar Collateral Ligament Tear in Elite Baseball Pitchers Are High School Showcase Exposures Associated with Injury. So Peter, talk to us about this reasoning for deciding to look at this topic and then how you went through the study and, and let us know what you found. This was interesting. So I think like you guys, there are certain times of the year, I'm in the Northeast, so we've got a different season than Jason does, particularly for high school baseball. So our baseball season, generally kids are most part picking up a ball pitchers in January. Now that's now moved back to December and maybe November, depending on your level of play. But generally January, you're picking up a baseball and most kids are playing travel baseball through mid-October. And then as most of us know, there are some showcase events that occur in the South in October where a lot of kids go down after their fall ball season. And particularly as they're getting closer to recruitment age, those are events that they want to go throw. So you're talking about for now, uh, maybe not competitively throwing, but you know, a season that's now at least 10 months long where you're doing some level of max effort throwing. And so in my clinic, I was seeing a lot of kids coming back at the age of 15 or 16 from Florida showcases in October with arm injuries. And it made me realize that, you know, those of us that are familiar with showcases, it's not just going, it depends on how many arms you bring too, right? So if you're going to win a, a tournament, you need to bring a lot of arms. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line. So teams that are going that maybe just be a travel local travel team that have maybe four pitchers, it's going to be really hard to get a five or six game tournament and win it. It is a lot of max effort throwing. It's a lot of workload and it's in front of radar guns, right? So these are opportunities for kids to potentially showcase their skills to college and potentially pro scouts in some situations. And ultimately it can be one of the factors, at least for shoulder and elbow injuries, as we know, and I'll get into. The other piece of this was at the time, my son was on a travel team and he and about 12 of his teammates ended up getting recruited to play college baseball. So, you know, you can look at these metrics. You can go to the showcases and see everyone's exit velocity as well as their their fastball velocities, their slider velocities. But it, it made me realize, hey, you know, there's a, just a treasure trove of information that the showcases have of great, really objective metric data. And, you know, during this, I was like, hey, I'm curious. Like, if we look back at pro players over the last decade, do they have metrics in there? And sure enough, they did. And so it gave me an idea for a study, which we did, that I'll go through with you. So kind of just giving you the background, those of us that treat throwing injuries know that these ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction surgeries have really reached epidemic proportions, if you want to call it an epidemic, but not just at the youth or the high school or the college, the pro level, but all of them, right? And we know from previous research that there are multiple risk factors for an ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction surgery that can include pitch count, 
innings pitched in the season, your pitch velocity, your throwing mechanics, as Jason has alluded to, days of rest and fatigue, but also showcase participation. But up until we had done this study, there had really been limited data from telephone and, and paper format and internet-based surveys that had corroborated the association of showcase participation as a risk factor for UCL tear or, or Tommy John surgery, as, as we call it. We thought we'd put together a study with a purpose that we would determine the predictors of UCL reconstruction surgery among an elite group of baseball pitchers that I'll talk about, that, that group, from pitching-related exposures that they had during their adolescent and high school careers, so before they essentially turned pro, okay? And we had two hypotheses. The first was that pitchers that achieved fastball velocity thresholds of 90, 92, and 95 miles per hour at younger ages would go on to UCL reconstruction earlier in their career. The second hypothesis was that pitchers with higher showcase volumes during high school careers would be more likely to undergo UCL reconstruction. And so we chose those 90, 92, 95 mile per hour thresholds somewhat arbitrarily, but we had done some previous research in a study involving major league pitchers with UCL tears that demonstrated that the mean fastball velocity of about 91.7 miles per hour during the regular season was higher than that that didn't tear during the regular season. They had a, a mean fastball velocity of 91 uh, that was the match control group. So additionally, there had been uh, a recent survey of amateur and pro pitchers that identified 90 to 95 miles per hour as the average velocity pitchers associate with UCL injuries. So that's why we kind of used those and developed those, those thresholds. So this was a retrospective cohort study. We included pitchers that were selected in the first five rounds of the major league draft over a decade, so 2011 through 2020. And so we chose that subset because that draft, that group of draft picks has historically been shown to have the best chances of reaching the major leagues. The other reason we chose that decade, the 2011-2020 decade, was that youth sports in the U.S. have grown by 55% since 2010, if you look at industry data. We know that baseball showcase organizations such as Perfect Game and, and uh Prep Baseball Report have undergone substantial growth since about 2005, where they initially started in the Midwest regionally, and then they've expanded to like a national showcase tournament and organization. And then we all know that UCL reconstruction rates have continued to rise rapidly over that decade, but there's also been a profound increase among adolescent athletes as been shown by ASMI and other groups. We essentially took this cohort of pitchers and looked at those that underwent reconstruction and didn't have UCL reconstruction. Then we also looked at whether they had early versus late career UCL reconstruction. I'll define that for you in a little bit. We obtained baseball statistics and injury data from reputable websites, so MLB.com, BaseballReference.com, and then John Rogiel, who's a baseball writer and analyst who maintains a Google spreadsheet on Tommy John surgeries for Major League Baseball players. It's been it's publicly available. It's been referenced by many authors that have done UCL studies. And then we collected showcase performance data from Perfect Game and Prep Baseball Report, their websites. And then we only included showcases in which pitchers appeared where they pitched and in which performance metrics were collected. From our methods, we did um, a multivariable analysis with logistic regression. One of the things that we did, and this is figure one in page 3075, we wanted to see the distribution at age of first UCL reconstruction. And we, we were hoping it would follow a normal distribution, which it did, which really made it nice because 
well, first of all, we were able to confirm that using a statistical test called the Shapiro-Wilk test, which we did confirm. But then it allowed us to set up using standard deviations, ages of early UCL reconstruction and late UCL reconstruction. So initially, we were hoping to use two standard deviations, minus two and plus two, but there just were too few participants at those cutoffs. So we used minus one and plus one and established those as kind of the average age of injury for the early UCL reconstruction and the late UCL reconstruction. I'll get to that. In terms of our results, there were 845 pitchers that were selected in the first five rounds of the draft over that decade. 659 or about 80% had retrievable performance data from these showcases. All 659 that we included in the analysis had fastball velocity data and about 57% had slider data. We found that in this cohort, 229 of the 845, or about 27%, had UCL reconstruction at the time of our manuscript preparation. That's consistent with the literature. About 25% of MLB pitchers have been shown to have UCL reconstruction in, in other studies. So the mean age at the first UCL reconstruction was about 22. There were 34 pitchers in that early UCL reconstruction group, and that minus one standard deviation age cutoff was 19 years. And then there were 38 pitchers that were in the late UCL reconstruction group, and that plus one standard deviation was about 24.8 years. If you go to table two on page 3077, this is showing our univariate results that compare the UCL reconstruction to no UCL reconstruction group. And the pertinent findings here, the statistically significant findings, were the pitchers that achieved a peak fastball velocity of equal to or greater than 90 and 92 miles per hour at high school showcases were more likely to undergo UCL reconstruction versus pitchers that did not achieve those peak fastball velocities at the showcases. Secondly, peak fastball velocity at high school showcases was significantly higher in the UCL reconstruction group compared to the UCL, no UCL reconstruction group. So it was 91.6 compared to 90.7. So essentially a one mile per hour faster in the UCL reconstruction group. And as Jason alluded to earlier, these small increments, these are means, right? So they are significant. And then if you go to table three, which is on the next page, 3078, this shows our univariate results comparing the early versus late UCL reconstruction groups. And the pertinent findings were the age at first showcase, the age the slider was first showcased, and the age that they achieved a fastball velocity of equal to or greater than 90 miles per hour were all significantly younger for the early UCL reconstruction group compared to the late UCL reconstruction group. Also significant was that these elite pitchers with early UCL reconstruction participated in nearly twice as many showcases compared to the late UCL reconstruction group over the course of their high school careers. So 5.4 versus 2.9 high school showcases over the course of the careers. Next table on table four, which is page 3079, this shows the results of our multivariable analysis that compared UCL reconstruction to the no UCL reconstruction group. And according to the adjusted odds ratio, the likelihood of undergoing UCL reconstruction increased by 19% for every mile per hour increase in peak fastball velocity at the high school showcases. Surprisingly, the pitchers who achieved a fastball velocity of equal to or greater than 95 miles per hour at the high school showcases had significantly lower odds of a UCL reconstruction. I'm happy to discuss that and what we think are some potential explanations of that at the conclusion of this. So, and then there's a figure, figure two, that is on page 3080. And this shows trends among the major league pitchers drafted in the first five rounds of the 2011 through 2020 drafts. 
over the course of this decade. And we, this is using their, their showcase metric data. This is kind of a complicated table figure because it has a double y-axis. So on the left y-axis is the age and years. And on the, the right y-axis is just the number of showcases. And so you can see the plots are a little challenging because they've got lines and, and it's a black gray orientation with uh, triangles and things, but I'll, I'll go through this. So the, the pertinent results was says that over the course of this decade, the mean age of UCL reconstruction decreased by greater than 3.5 years. The mean number of high school showcases a pitcher participated in increased greater than twofold. The mean age that a pitcher achieved the 90 mile per hour threshold for their fastball and showcases decreased by about half a year. That's a, that's a big difference. You know, went from 17.2 to 16.7 years, particularly if you're talking about a kid in various stages of, of physical maturity. And then the mean age at first showcase decreased from 16.5 to 15.6 years. So think about that for a minute too. You know, got kids under the age of 16, more of them skeletal immature, in front of radar guns, throwing max effort. And these trends are continuing in these directions, which is, is very concerning. You know, this is the first study that we're aware of that's used high school showcase performance-based metrics and participation data to determine risk factors for UCL reconstruction among elite pitchers. Main finding, peak fastball velocity at high school showcase events is the strongest predictor of UCL reconstruction as it has been in Major League Baseball pitchers as well. The elite pitchers that have achieved the 90 and 90 mile 92 mile per hour fastball velocity thresholds at high school showcases were significantly more likely to undergo UCL reconstruction, not necessarily earlier in their careers, but just to, in the UCLR versus no UCLR groups. And then age at first high school showcase, age for showcasing a slider, and age achieving fastball velocity of 90 miles per hour in a high school showcase were significantly younger in the early UCLR group compared to the late UCLR group. Limitations, you know, the, the strengths of the study was the size of the cohort. You know, we had 659 pitchers that we analyzed. We included elite pitchers other than MLB pitchers. So these were all amateurs. You know, we're looking at their data when they were in high school, obviously high level pitchers, but not pro pitchers. And so, and then the use of this, these, we had a normally distributed curve and we statistically analyzed this early versus late cutoffs was, was some of the strengths. And then limitations like any Retrospective cohort study, there's a potential for confounding and bias. There's a potential for information bias, just inaccurate data from the internet-based references. And then if you look at our multivariable analysis model, overall, there were weak predictors. You know, if you look at our study variance using the Nagel-Kirke R-squared, it was uh, it was 3.8%. Essentially, the variance is, you know, the, the factors or variables not included in the multivariable analysis. So in our case, about 96% of the variance was not accounted by our model. But that's pretty consistent with other literature. Peter Chalmers and others uh, published a study at the MLB level, and I think their R-squared was 7%. So it's really hard to account for all of these factors and variables. You know, there are numerous independent variables related to workloads, as we talked about pitch counts, innings um, per, per year, number of teams for seasons, biomechanics, medical history. And you're not going to be able to get all of that information from a study like this, where you're just looking at showcase data. So in full disclosure, obviously there are some limitations to the study, but the take home message here is while our, our results can't really support a moratorium on showcase participation for pitchers under the age of 16, they really provide some compelling evidence to question whether the potential benefits of showcase participation, which is exposure to college coaches, pro scouts outweigh the potential risks, which include UCLR injury. So 
again, I think it provided also a little bit more objective information regarding showcase exposures, a little bit more reliable information rather than just that reported through survey data. So while it, it's not going to account for all the risk factors, I think it, it, it shows that showcasing can be a variable and a, a risk factor for UCL injury, but also children elbow injuries in general. You mentioned it and you said you want to talk about it. And it was one of my stars <laughs> as I was reading through your article about this whole 95 mile an hour and above having a lower risk for UCL. You said you had some thoughts and ideas. I'm curious what your thoughts and ideas are on that. And certainly Jason's too, of why you saw a decrease. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a surprising finding. Our first thought, at least from a statistical basis, was, all right, maybe we're not accounting for lead time bias. Some of those pitchers are certainly going to go on and tear, right? And of those pitchers that achieved 95 that were in the no UCL reconstruction group, some of those are going to go on. And if you look at the MLB data, it's about five pro seasons is the average time to tear. Now, we can go into a, a different discussion. We've done a, a follow-up study where we've looked at a new time to tear definition that pertains to amateur pitchers, where we recommend using these velocity threshold costs once you achieve 90, 92, 95, and then the years after that, between the time you achieve that milestone and when you tear. So part of this just could be lead time bias. It, it could also be that these pitchers have superior mechanical efficiency. It may be in, in talking to a lot of baseball people that some of these guys that are flamethrowers, you know, they don't have the same workload over their calendar year compared to the kids that don't throw as hard, you know, because they have these eye popping metrics, they only have to go to a couple showcase events. They probably pitch fewer innings over the course of the year because a lot of them are probably closers and, and pitching two, three innings a game tops. I, I think I'd like to go back, you know, this is 83 pitchers that in this cohort that achieved that 95 mile per hour fastball threshold at high school showcase. I'd like to go back and kind of take a look at a subgroup analysis but I, I think some of this can be explained by lead time bias. Peter, number one, you know, when I saw this come out, I was blown away by the volume of data. This is a really tough study, but it's also to do. So I, I you know, kudos to you and your team. Just the volume of data and good data is, is quite outstanding. I want to ask a devil's advocate question to you, and you, there won't be data to back it up. But this goes because there was an, a similar manuscript I saw years ago that came out where it said, if you participate in Little League Baseball and the Eden Fall pitch counts, that once you were a pro, get increased risk of, of getting UCL injury. And it was interesting because which came first, the chicken or the egg. Do you think that if you throw over 90 or 92, it's that is the reason you have that increased risk of UCL reconstruction? And because you're so good, you're just invited to the showcases. Or it's participating in the showcases is the increased risk factor to then tear. And I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer and you can't prove it. But that's what I, I as I'm going through this, I'm like, you know, if my kid can throw 92, she's going to be sought after to go to showcases, but she's already thrown 92. So I'm curious what you think about that. Correct. Yeah, I, I think. You know, and taking a step back, because I've had this conversation with a number of people in the baseball community, that the intent of this study wasn't to lambaste the showcase organizations, right? Yes, there are some things that I think need better regulation, but that I, I think I think it's a chicken and egg type analogy. So, what I was really interested in, and you know, just to, I, I'll try to answer your question in a, in a roundabout way, but 
I was really interested in winter showcases. And we, we broke that data down, at least, you know, I think I'd find it as November through February in this paper. I'd have to go back and look. But the problem was there just, there just weren't enough pitchers that were participating in those off-season showcases. And, and good for them, right? Because we know that those spikes in workloads can be risks. But then I was also very interested in breaking down pitchers that had achieved, and we did this through both categorical and con- continuous variables, high volume. You know, we, we, we broke it down 5 to 10, 10 to 15, 15 to 20, 20 to 25. And whether these kids that were participating in 25 showcases had a higher rate of injury, and at least from a UCL reconstruction standpoint. And the data didn't play out that way necessarily. So part of it is it's just such small numbers, right, of, the, of their outliers, the kids that are achieving are going to that many showcases. But it's it's a piece of this. I think, you know, this study allowed me to really think about just workload spread out through a calendar year and talk to people. And, and you know, I think we're all trying to figure out for the general public, what is the ideal way to spread out this workload so that you have an adequate ramp up and, and ramp down and sprinkle in your strength and conditioning. And, and, you know, we can get into a debate whether you throw or don't throw in your off season, but the, the, the primary intent here was not to put the showcases under a lot of scrutiny. I, I think it's, it's a piece of this. And I was just interested. I had really researched the literature and found that, hey, you know, the, the studies that have been done were mainly internet and uh, paper surveys that were part of, you know, that, that surgical groups had done when these patients had come in for tears and they were trying to get some information that obviously is going to be subject to recall bias and just reporting bias. So it was really just to provide a better quality, if you will, set. And I was just like you, Jason, I was just amazed at the treasure trove of information that you could really find. And and you could really follow a kid out a timeline because if they were a lot of times when they go to the summer showcases, they'll start May, June, July, or August. And you'll see, hey, they hit 87 in May, they were up to 89 in June. And by July, they were throwing 91. And so there was a progression that probably followed with their workloads and, and buildups and everything else. And as a researcher gave us an opportunity to say, hey, there are other ways to kind of look at this that are unique, you know, and, and, and these sites, it's all publicly available. Now, obviously, that's going to be subject to, um, you know, the quality of the data, data too. But I, I think a number of researchers, particularly when you look at John Rogill and, and just what people have used for his Tommy John surgeries, I, I think that's fairly reputable and um, it's not perfect, but really any research design isn't perfect either, correct? Peter, I couldn't find it. I'm just curious. This is me thinking out loud. The I guess you would say the protective effect by throwing over 95 miles per hour. Were you able to look, because I couldn't find it within the data, but maybe it wasn't published. Was there a difference in height and or weight in those thrown over 95 versus the 90 to 94? I thought of that this morning too, Jason, as I was preparing for that. That's where I, I, I went back. I didn't I didn't allude to it in any of the tables, but what I, I expect to see when, because I want to do a subgroup analysis on those 83 pitchers, my sense is they're probably taller, heavier, and have higher BMIs. You know that when you look at the literature, those can be risk factors for tear, but I think that's going to be more protective, particularly at, at a high school age, because we all know, I think we get concerned about the tall, lanky kids who weigh, you know, 160, 170 pounds that are throwing 95 miles per hour versus the kid who's 6'4 and 225, right? I mean, he's just going to have a lower half, a lower segment that's going to help decelerate so much better. And it's it's, it's not going to be all you know, if you think about it from a kinetic chain standpoint, it's not going to be absorbed by his posterior shoulders. I mean, that's part of it, obviously, but uh, the, the, the kids that 
don't weigh as much or taller that are throwing high velocity. I worry about those kids tearing, you know? And so I, I think that's what you're alluding to. But I think one of the things that I've taken away from this conversation is I do want to look back at that because I've had a number of people come up to me when I presented this paper at, at, uh, at some conferences too. They're, everyone's intrigued by that result. The other thing that kind of drew my attention was those when you looked at the secondary positions that uh, people reported that they participated. And I was very looking to see how many were actually catchers in this situation too. the pitcher catcher combination, which was only, I think, 3.2 percent is what I had written down here. Yeah, I think the most common was first base and outfield, right? I mean, that's what I remember off the top of my head, which makes yeah. sense. If you're a lefty, first of all, those are the two positions you're going to be able to play. So I think that, that that plays into it. But I think smartly, a lot of them have been advised to stay away from shortstop, third base, catchers. Catchers, certainly. I mean, I think that's out there. But it, I mean, obviously, a lot of, some of them are corner infielders and shortstops. I mean, that's, that's still a lot of, of throwing volume, as we all know. But I think the other interesting part of that was the the finding that you had were that if those that went underwent uh, UCL reconstructions at the older age group, those are the ones that designated themselves as pitchers only in this part. And they did not have a secondary position, which, again, probably goes back to what we've discussed for is just workload in general would be at least my thought process in that. Yeah. I, and that's why, you know, I, I'll tell you, you guys, you guys have done research like the hardest part about this. And maybe I'm just I'm just not as sophisticated, but I didn't do like it took a good year to build out that database and I didn't do like a preliminary analysis, which I probably should have because sometimes you're just, you're putting all this time and effort in. You're just hoping that you achieve some good results, which we did. I mean, part of this was, you know, we were just kind of lucky, which, which happens. But when you build out a database, I, I was trying to put in as many variables as I could positions, PO, all the things we think about, because to some extent people say, Oh, you shouldn't PO too early but maybe being a PO is protective, right? And, and that's, that's one of the things that it's really hard because you know, you're, it's, again, reporting bias. So this is based on the demographics that the participant in the showcase is putting down on their registration. You know, there are other positions and things too. So they may just, it's not necessarily accurate in regards to their, all their baseball activities, but that may have been what they just reported. Well, any final like wrap up take home points from either of you from today and and feel free to talk about some of the other things that we're you guys are working on right now i know and i I will point out to to josh rudd on social media because i know that's how i actually got a little spurred to saying hey maybe we should look at these articles i already had kind of wanted to talk about peter's article anyhow after prism but there's been a kind of a big movement with josh rudd as far as arm care and i know you guys have been involved with that through social media with him uh and he's now a follow for me but just kind of talking about just in general, you know, what other things, take home points, if you want to talk about that at all before we wrap up. I think Peter and both say Josh is, we really are thankful. Josh really put, I think, an even greater spotlight on something that is is not just in the medical and athletic training community, but I think is really starting to permeate into the parents, even the coaches. As we know, you know, baseball and softball, they historically like to do things a certain way and, and kind of go with the status quo. And so change is difficult sometimes, but I'd really like to compliment Josh and the team that he's led to kind of put a spotlight on this. I think further is, as has been noted in multiple manuscripts today, and Peter and I can talk to you from our weekend about this, is there's always change. The only constant is change. So I think it's open for debate about do we need to continue to update some of the recommendations and guidelines, particularly at the high school and lower levels. Because as I was kind of making up in a theoretical example, 
is pitch counts 20 years ago are different than pitch counts now because velocity is higher because of training programs are different. They're probably improved in some instances. Nutrition is better. You know, the whole bigger, faster, stronger phenomenon. Kids in, in all sports are playing more, particularly up north with these indoor facilities. It's not just the Florida, California, Texas, Louisiana kids. If, you, if there's an indoor facility nearby in Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, and your child is interested, your child's going to find his or her way there. I think continue to do the best that we can from an outreach standpoint and take care of our student athletes, it always stays the same. I think maybe the approach at high levels, maybe there's going to be a little bit of an evolution of things in the next couple of years. I don't know, Peter, I'll, I'll defer to you if there's anything else you want to add or take a different spin on it. Yeah, I think Jason and I have, you know, this this connection we have has really been tremendous. It's, it's, I think early on, I said to, to Jason, you know, a, a rising tide raises all boats or whatever, you know, the, the metaphor is you want to use, you know, there's a real opportunity here. I think if you collaborate and form a coalition, you can, you can potentially get to an end result a lot easier than if you do it individually. And what we found is like, this is multidisciplinary and, and, and everyone from parents to, to, to coaches, to players, to training facility people, to showcase organizations want to do what's best for kids and want to reduce arm injuries, right? And so I think we've put together kind of a grassroots coalition. And it's, it's been amazing just with social media, just how many people you can reach and how many people have been interested. And so another name just to throw out, Josh has been tremendous, Alan Yeager, who many of you may know from J-Bands. Most of your kids have those in your travel bags. But uh, Alan has done incredible work over 30 years on throwing programs and has really kind of developed a year-round throwing program, which initially you'd say, well, kids shouldn't be throwing year-round, but a lot of that includes active rest and you kind of reverse engineers it based on your start dates and things like that. And I think, you know, there are a couple things like that's something I think if we're looking beyond pitch smart and I'm not criticizing pitch smart at all, I think we're at a point where there is a need for maybe some reform where we go beyond pitch counts and days of rest, which maybe need some modifications themselves, but also just looking at what is an optimal year-round throwing program, or at least a throwing program that would result in fewer arm injuries. And I think there has to be a marriage between the medical community and the baseball community. A lot of times they're separate silos, but I think the time is really ripe. And I'm not saying that hasn't been done before. This has obviously been done with the pitch mark group too, but that the two groups are having conversations and getting involved so that we can continue to evolve these recommendations and so that there's better compliance and, and ultimately we have lower injury rates. The the challenging part is, is as Jason's alluded to, is it, velocity is sexy, right? It's 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 king right now. And and I've always, you know, from doing these studies, my point has been, why, why does a 15-year-old have to throw 90 or 92? You know, so he can walk away with 15, 20 strikeouts in a high school game, but really you want that kid to have longevity and to be able to perform at a higher level if he's got that skill set in college and, and maybe at the pro level. And so we know that, you know, just colloquial, that you have so many throws in your arm. So why are you doing that at 15 years old, throwing at high velocities with, with just high stresses then? Because at some point you're going to break down. And so I'd like to see ultimately across the board, there'd be less of an emphasis on throwing high velocities at younger ages. And that's where if I, if I had a recommendation for the showcases, I would say, you know, I, I would like to see pitchers 
under 16 not showcase because so much of the focus is a showcase combines so many of those risk factors, right? It's going to be pitch counts, pitch velocities, fatigue, all of those things. And I think it just, it can be an increased risk. We haven't, no one's necessarily shown that. And that wasn't the point of the study, but I do think we have to reevaluate that because the other concern is the radar guns now. So a lot of programs are using radar guns to, well, not necessarily a rehabilitative standpoint, but for a ramp up standpoint. So like to quantify percent of max effort, right, Jason? I mean, a lot of these training facilities are using them for that purpose, not necessarily for recording max effort, but to use it. And then there may be a role for that, but it's again, more utilization of a radar gun. And, you know, kids will be kids. You get them in a facility and if they can light up a radar gun, they're gonna, whether it's January or, or August, you know? And so I, I just think as adults, we've got a adult here and really, really think about some of these things. And the more we can bring these communities together, and have these conversations about what is best. And hopefully some of it, most of it's evidence-based. You know, that's the tough part because studies take a long time to develop and to implement. But I, I think I think progress is good. I think it's time maybe for some adjustments to some of the recommendations we've put out. The only other thing I wanted to say, my last comment, you know, I know Peter said uh, velocity is sexy. Remember when it said chicks dig the long ball? <laughs> it's flip, man. It's totally flip now. They have to have Rawls Chapman doing chicks dig my 105 mile an hour fastball. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, great stuff, gentlemen. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Peter Kriz and Dr. Jason Zremski for their time today and providing some great insight in the ways we can try and improve the sport of baseball for our younger athletes. We'll be sure to have links to all the articles in our show notes so you can reference those. We thank you for your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen today. Please subscribe to the podcast for your favorite podcast streaming site so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and thanks for listening to another research review episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.